In Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are a long section of teaching by Jesus, and it ends with the words that we read this day. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This fall semester, I'll return to the classroom and teach an introduction to preaching. Students, I guarantee, will, upon opening the syllabus and turning to page three or four, freak out. Because there it will say that we will spend an entire three-hour class session on how to end a sermon. They cannot for the life of them imagine how we could talk about that for three hours. Afterwards, they pretty much concur we needed more time to talk about that, but not ahead of time. One of the pieces that we look at was something Fred Craddock used to do in workshops with pastors. He was a great disciples preacher and teacher of preaching, and he had a workshop called 13 Ways to End a Sermon. One of those is to end with a powerful story or image. And apparently, Jesus was familiar with that approach. Or, more accurately, Fred was familiar with the preaching of Jesus, right? Or, even more accurately, to split hairs, he was familiar with the preaching of Matthew. Let me explain what I mean. When Matthew gets around to writing his gospel, it is 50 years after the ministry of Jesus. He is not an eyewitness, but he has all of these oral traditions as well as a copy of Mark's gospel. And as he combs through this and through that and tries to figure out how he's going to construct his life of Jesus, what he comes up with is to make Jesus a kind of new Moses. And so in Matthew's gospel, the whole thing is built around five large chunks, that's the technical term there, five large chunks of teaching. The first chunk is this one, the Sermon on the Mount. And as that chunk comes to an end, well, you heard it, Jesus tells this little story or this parable, this image of two builders. It could just as easily start like a joke. You know, like, did you hear the one about the two guys who built their homes on different foundations? And then the joke's off and running. In, in the case of the first one, he built his house on rock, which I suspect is something Jesus really appreciated because contrary to popular opinion, he was probably not a carpenter, but a stonemason. The word that the New Testament uses just means craftsperson, and given where he grew up and the materials that were used, he, he probably worked with limestone. And he knows, Jesus knows rocks. He knows how hard they are, how firm they are. And he says, that's, 
That's the house built on rock that listens and acts on my word. And then there's the other guy who builds his house on sand, and instantly my mind was taken back. Two years ago this fall, I went down to Orlando to help put in a privacy fence for my son and his family. I was digging post holes every eight feet all the way around the edge of this property. And if you've ever dug a post hole, and I mean the old-fashioned way, here in the Midwest, there's clay and there's rock, and it is torture. And I'm not making this up, but in Orlando, I could drop the post hole digger and it would sink in three inches deep. I could dig a three-foot hole in less than a minute. And I thought, you probably don't want to build a house on this. Not unless you pour some rock first, right? A foundation. And the point of Jesus' little story is very easy to grasp. It's not the difference between those who hear and those who don't. Everybody hears in this case. It's between those who do something with what they hear, and that's the key word. Near the end of his sermon, he keeps saying it over and over again, doing and does, doing and does. So I went back, since this is the end of his sermon, and sort of scoured the Sermon on the Mount, and I came up with a list. It's not an exhaustive list but a kind of list of the highlights of the sermon. But the problem is not that I've taken a random sampling. The problem is that when you hear words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it's almost like they're etched in stone on a big building or printed on a Hallmark card or maybe on a plaque over your sink, you know. They're just worn. They no longer have a bite to them. So I've taken the liberty of doing a little paraphrasing. Because one thing is clear. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' ethic is counter to the culture of the Roman Empire. This is about as far removed from how Caesars reign and as far removed from our culture as you can get. So fasten your seatbelt, as they say. Jesus starts, you may remember, he goes up the mountain like the new Moses, and he opens his mouth and he teaches those beatitudes, that's what we call them, which really cleans it up. Blessed are, blessed are, not probably the best translation, honored might be more accurate. And honored, not not are the movers and the shakers and the money makers, honored in God's reign are the down and out, those on the edge, those who are broken, and those who are meek. Yeah, in God's reign, those who are meek. And it's not the generals who make war, but honored are those who make peace. And then he says, you know, if you think I came to do away with the law and all this Old Testament stuff... No, 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 you got another thing coming. He says, I I came to fulfill it, or as one of my professors used to say, to fill it full, to take it maybe even to the next level. Because you remember he said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. Uh, I say unto you, you should not even think murderous thoughts and say murderous words. Which, wow, if I followed that one, it would totally redo the interior monologue in my brain when I'm driving. And more than that, it could redo all of our political speech. 
And Jesus is just getting started. He says, you know, if you think going to church and dropping a buck in the plate and eating some bread and some juice, if you think that's going to count for anything, you got another thing coming. That's just going through the motions. In fact, he says, if you come up here to receive this stuff, or you put your offering in the plate, and you still have somebody that you need to ask for forgiveness, you're wasting your time. Which I, I think about these two people I know. I hate to say it. They're ministers, but they used to serve on staff together. They no longer even talk to each other. And so on Sundays, they invite people to an altar, but they won't talk to each other. And Jesus says, if you do any of these things, you're, you're just play acting. You're like Shakespeare in the part. You're Hamlet. Well, you're not really. You're just pretending. And then he says, well, if you only hang around with people who have the same worldview, you know, that voted like you and whose kids go to the same schools, well, whoop-de-doo. That's not exactly how he says it, but that's the point. He says, you should love even your enemies. He also says that if you think life is about amassing wealth, well, look again. No one can serve two masters, he says. You've heard that line before, right? No one can serve two masters. Actually, that's not quite true. It's just very hard work. I've tried it. Haven't you tried it? I mean, you can do it. It'll just drive you crazy in the long run if you try to serve God and to serve the world or try to serve God and serve money. You can do it, but oh my gosh, it's a full-time job and then some. It'll drive you bonkers. And so will worry, says Jesus. In fact, he says, you know what you ought to do? You ought to look at the birds of the air. Well, I thought, well, that's homework. So I've been doing it the last few weeks. I sat out on the deck with a glass of wine in the evening, and I looked at this little mama robin and her babies up on the pergola. And while I have this little list of worries that I go through, mama robin does not. So there's some homework for you. And then there's that one, it's kind of another joke he tells, about judging others. You remember this one? That this person, this woman, she has a speck of sawdust in her eye, and her friend says, oh yeah, let, here, let me get it out. I'll get a Kleenex, and I'll just dab at it. Except she's got a two-by-four sticking out of her head. And Jesus says, that is the image of judging others. Now, personally, I always thought it was the other way around. I knew that I had sawdust, you know, my issues, but everybody else, you, you folks have two-by-fours. And Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. And then there's that golden rule. It's a great story behind this one. About 100 years or so before Jesus, Rabbi Hillel, very influential on Jesus, somebody came to him, a Gentile, and said, can you summarize all of the teachings of the law while standing on one foot? He'd been to see another rabbi and asked him the same question. And that rabbi said, get out of here. But Hillel said, yes. And standing on one foot, he said, do not do unto others what you would not want them to do unto you. Jesus, of course, turns that one around. But he sums it up with that phrase. So then you have to ask yourself, what's on your list for how you want others to treat you or not treat you? And I'm pretty sure that near the top of mine 
is that I would love for other folks to have an open mind and to be civil when disagreeing. That's really up there, near the top for me. But here's the catch to Jesus' golden rule. You have to say it while you're looking in a mirror. If one of my students turned in this sermon for a class, I would send it back. You know? First thing I'd say is, it's way too long. Nobody's going to sit still for three chapters of red letters. This is just too much. But, but it's not just that. Because preachers don't just interpret Scripture. They interpret the human condition. And near as I can tell, the bar is too high. This is too hard. I mean, it even says somewhere in there, you should be perfect. You've watched the Olympics, right? They have that degree of difficulty on those divers. This is impossible. Or maybe not. Maybe, maybe in a way and maybe not. Here's what I mean. Just before the verses we read, so the next to last thing in the Sermon on the Mount, it reads like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we perform miracles in your name and cast out demons? Not everyone who says that makes the cut. Now think about that. Not everyone who does miracles makes the cut. Maybe what Jesus is saying is he's not looking for the miraculous on our part, but faithfulness in the everydayness of life. Being peacemakers, speaking kind words, caring. Maybe that's it. It does help that in the middle of the sermon... There's that prayer that we pray every week, which has that line about forgiveness. So even when we fail, there's forgiveness. But the bar, it's there. So this fall, there it will be in the syllabus, how to end a sermon. And yes, we will look at Fred's list of 13 ways to end a sermon. I have a suggestion for a 14th. It's hard to improve on anything Fred ever did, but I have a suggestion. Now, it comes, it comes in the form of a story. Twenty-plus years ago, I had a student in class named Scott. And he came to me one day and he said, I'm not going to be in class this week. He didn't look sick. I thought, well, maybe, you know, funeral, something like that. And he said, nope, it's Oklahoma. That week had been the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building. And all of those people working there and all of those children in the daycare. And he said, I cannot sit in class when just a few hours south, the world has been rearranged. And even if all I do is drive down there and sit on a curb with someone who's crying, I'm going. And I thought that was the dumbest thing in the world. How in the world is this guy ever going to learn how to end a sermon if he doesn't come to class? 